Support for WPR comes from Explore Monroe County, from the Elroy Sparta Bicycle Trail to the Warren's Cranberry Festival, featuring artist booths and cranberry marsh tours. More at exploremonroecounty.org. More than you know. Support for WPR comes from Wills on behalf of Wisconsin Public Libraries, offering access to ebooks, audiobooks, digital magazines, and more. Available with a Wisconsin Library card at wisconsinsdigitallibrary.org. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Last week, Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board approved the Department of Natural Resources' new wolf management plan for Wisconsin. The DNR's previous plan had a population goal of 350 wolves in the state. Wisconsin now has almost 1,000 wolves, and the new plan sets a range from 800 to 1,200 wolves in the state. The decision comes after opposition from legislative Republicans that included rejecting several appointees on the Natural Resources Board. We're talking about Wisconsin's new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have thoughts on the DNR's new wolf management plan? Uh, Do you have questions about it? Are there changes you'd like to see made one way or another? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Randy Johnson is a large carnivore specialist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Randy, thanks a lot for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's take a look at the uh, current or the last uh, wolf management plan. What has been in place, uh, Randy, now for some years here in Wisconsin? Yeah, we've had a management plan for wolves in in uh, in place, actually going back to the 1980s. Uh, but the most recent iteration was first Written and approved in 1999, uh, it got a small overhaul uh, in the late 2000s. But um, you know, much of that plan was really focused on wolf recovery in the state and trying to bring back this native species that uh, had been extirpated in the 18, uh, 1900s. And, and so much of those plans were focused on wolf recovery. And so it talked about uh, trying to grow those populations. How do we deal with conflict in certain situations and, and things like that? Um, but as we know, uh, uh, the wolf population has grown and has recovered, uh, and that's where this new plan comes into place. One big uh, factor in some ways out of Wisconsin's control, whether or not the gray wolf is currently listed as endangered in states like Wisconsin. This has gone back and forth over the years. Can you give us the latest and, and how it affects uh, our wolf management plans here in the state? Yeah, for sure. So we have our state management plans, um, but what we're talking about here is Uh, At the federal level, uh, wolves uh, have been mostly uh, included on the federal list of endangered species uh, over the last, you know, several decades. Um, It it does go back and forth, but uh, they are currently still on the federal endangered species list. And this has a lot of implications on uh, wolves and wolf management in the state. Um, Probably the two most impactful uh, pieces are the availability of public harvest of wolves uh, in the state, uh, as well as Uh, lethal uh, uh, conflict abatement options uh, in the case of livestock uh, conflicts or or things like that. So uh, when they're on that federal list of endangered species, those options are off the table. uh, And and obviously when they're off the list, then then those options become available. Okay, so that's the background. Now bring us into uh, this new plan just approved by the Natural Resources Board. Uh, Could you talk about uh, the guidelines, the uh, goal range for wolves in the state, and why we arrived at these uh, these numbers. Sure, yeah. So this this plan, you know, kind of bringing it full circle, 
it really moves our, our management program, our management focus uh, into uh, kind of alignment with where the population's at today. And that is, it recognizes that the population has biologically recovered uh, and it, it outlines, you know, the management program for a recovered species. Uh, this includes, you know, things like our, our conflict program, uh, potential wolf hunting seasons, as well as a lot of other things like uh, public education and research needs and, and collaboration, things like that. Um, a, a big part of, of any management plan is, is trying to outline, you know, what the population is going to look like, how many, where uh, in the state, those types of things. And, and through this process, we've moved away from identifying a specific number of wolves as our management goal, uh, and instead are focused uh, more explicitly on, you know, basically the things people care about, uh, things like ensuring there's a healthy population, but also being responsive when conflicts arise. Uh, and and we, we've outlined a process called adaptive management, uh, which we can talk more about, but uh, we've outlined in the plan that through this adaptive management process, uh, we expect the wolf population to, to range somewhere in this 800 to 1200 uh, overall statewide uh, population size, but recognize it can be really variable depending on uh, where you're at in the state. Talking to Randy Johnson with Wisconsin DNR, large carnivore specialist there looking at a new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about this new plan. Uh, Do you have wolves in your part of the state? Uh, Do you see interactions between uh, humans, livestock, pets, and wolves that worry you? Or do you think we're at a pretty good level right now? Join in at 800-642-1234. One two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Randy, let's dig into that phrase you mentioned: adaptive management. What does that mean when we're talking about Wisconsin wolves? Sure. It, you know, in a word, it basically means continuing to learn from what we're doing and get better at what we're doing. Uh, so, implementing different management actions, whether we're talking about uh, hunting seasons and how the population responds uh, to. Uh, things like the conflict abatement program. How are we? How effectively are we reducing conflict and helping those that 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 need assistance, uh, as well as the population itself? Continuing to monitor and, and ensure that it's a healthy and sustainable population. Uh, it, it's an ongoing process. We implement these different actions, monitor, review, and and ultimately try to improve uh, as we move forward. There have been concerns raised, I think, in, especially in parts of northern Wisconsin, that the wolf numbers, uh, some people say, are too high. Uh, worries about depredations on pets and livestock. They're worried that uh, the numbers that are going to be maintained here are too high and will lead to more of those conflicts. Can you talk about how you, you assess those arguments and, and weigh those? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's been that's been a huge component of this this process is how do we balance out all the different desires and, and perspectives related to wolves? And no question, wolves uh, can and do cause some conflicts. And often those conflicts, those impacts, if you will, are disproportionately you know, uh, uh, felt by those living and working and recreating among wolves, in, in our case, in northern Wisconsin. So uh, it's important to recognize that and, and tr- try to uh, work towards uh, you know, improving that situation. But at the same time, you know, the science and in our own data, our experiences show that generally speaking, some of these conflicts are not well correlated with the overall statewide number of wolves. And this comes back to their biology. 
you know, they live in, in packs and territories which occupy, you know, certain spaces and uh, certain packs can, can learn to cause issues uh, with livestock or pets, uh, whereas most packs don't. And so uh, having the ability to deal and resolve with those conflicts, you know, where they're occurring at those locations is the most effective way ultimately to try to reduce some of those issues. Uh, whereas, you know, again, most of the packs uh, don't get into those issues. So it's having that site-specific abatement, uh, which is, is a really important tool. Bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. John is with us in Milwaukee. John, hi. Hey there. What'd you want to bring up? Um, I was just going to ask how many conflicts we have record of in Wisconsin. How many of these, you know, I would assume they're wolf attacks on livestock. Um, how many of those do we know about? John, thanks for the call. Randy, what do we know about reported numbers of wolf uh, depredations, I think they're called, on livestock? Yeah, sure. So, so this year we've had a, a little over a hundred total reported complaints, uh, and, and when we get a reported complaint, uh, we work with our partners at USDA Wildlife Services to send out a trained biologist to investigate, look for the clues, the tracks, et cetera, and, and verify whether or not wolves were involved. And typically, about three quarters of the time, they're verified as wolves. Uh, so this year. As of just a couple of days ago, we're at 77 verified complaints. Um, of those, uh, most, eh, a little over half, two-thirds, uh, are related to livestock, uh, and, and the rest are uh, hunting dog complaints. John, These, these numbers are, are, are generally on par with where we've been the last few years. John, thanks a lot for that call. Randy, if it seems like, okay, in this uh, area, on uh, these livestock farms, we seem to have a pattern of uh, repeated attacks on livestock. What kind of tools are there to deal with that? And I guess we should answer in two circumstances. Uh, if wolves are considered an endangered species federally, uh, which they currently are, and if they're not, which who knows, maybe next year they won't be. That's exactly right. Yeah. So so we, we unfortunately do see these uh, situations arrive. We call them chronic farms where they have uh, repeated uh, depredations or conflicts, repeated, you know, livestock uh, being killed or, or harassed. Uh, and in Currently, with wolves being federally endangered or listed as federally endangered, we, we don't have access to the lethal controls. So we have non-lethal tools. We have financial compensation. You know, those non-lethal tools can range from uh, anything from, you know, electric fencing, something called fladry, uh, which is uh, fencing related um, to auditory flashing lights, those types of things. Anything that uh, is a novel item introduced, you know, around these, these areas that, uh, makes wolves shy away. Um, it can also be things like uh, improved fencing, changing husbandry practices, some of those different, uh, you know, behavioral changes, if you will. Um, and all of these are, are kind of custom fit to the situation, to the farmer, uh, producer, and, and, and also depends on if it's the first time something's happened or, or obviously if it's the, the 10th time something has happened. Um, but in all of these cases, unfortunately, uh, the non-lethal tools, wolves can become conditioned to these and they lose their effectiveness through time. Uh, and that's where the importance of the lethal controls comes in. There are certain cases where once wolves become conditioned, those non-lethal items lose their effectiveness. Sometimes the last step we can use is to lethally remove some of those wolves uh, to get, get uh, those, those conflicts to stop. 
Talking to Randy Johnson, large carnivore specialist for the Wisconsin DNR. He's talking to us about the agency's new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How would you like to see the wolf population in Wisconsin managed? Do you have questions about uh, the DNR's new plan just approved by the uh, Natural Resources Board here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts and questions about wolves here in the state. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about Wisconsin's new wolf management plan. Randy Johnson stays with us, large carnivore specialist for the DNR, and you can join in at 800 1234 Do you have questions about the state's new wolf management plan? If you've been following this story over the months, over the years, do you have uh, strong feelings one way or another about how we deal with wolves here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800 642 one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Or email ideas at wpr.org. Go back to your calls now with Frank on the line in Springboro. Frank, hi. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, you know, regarding the, the wolf population, um, I've, I'm actually a local reporter up here. I've been covering issues about the wolves, and I've talked to you know Adrian Weiderman, uh, some wolf experts, and you know the thing that that always uh, sticks out to me is that in Wisconsin, wherever you have a dominant wolf population, you don't have deer with chronic wasting disease. And I would think deer hunters would look at that and say, well, that's a good thing. That's, that's what uh, a healthy wolf population brings to, say, northern Wisconsin and eliminates those uh, deer that are sick uh, or possibly sick, deer with uh, chronic wasting disease. So uh, I think uh, managing a wolf population that eliminates uh, Sick deer is a good thing. Frank, thanks a lot for the call. Randy, do you take that into consideration, uh, managing Wisconsin's uh, deer population as you're looking at the wolf management plan? Yeah, that's definitely something on the table. Um, <clears throat> what he's referring to is some, some, I guess, relatively recent research in the last 10 years or so that's kind of suggestive that large predators, including wolves, can be effective at uh, identifying deer that are, are sick with chronic wasting disease and, and removing them off the landscape. And, you know, it, it stands to reason that may be helpful in the long term to help uh, control the prevalence of CWD. Now, it's also fair to say that the research is ongoing in this and, and the, the, the final the scientific answer, if you will, is kind of uh, still to be determined. But, um, you know, at, at the same time, it's, it's been well established through, through the research that wolves are effective at helping maintain a generally healthier deer herd. Uh, and, and ultimately that that's beneficial to both deer as well as hunters. Thanks a lot for that call. Uh, Randy, I understand uh, in some cases hunters have been concerned. Well, uh, if wolf, wolves are eating deer, are there fewer deer for me to hunt come hunting season? Not too far off. Uh, how big an impact does that have? Yeah, I mean, it It really comes down to what scale we're talking about. On the statewide scale, you know, Wisconsin's deer herds are doing excellent. We've got lots and lots of deer in this state. So very little concern, very little impact at that population level. However, you know, at the, at the very small scale, for example, some hunter on a, maybe a 40-acre parcel, you know, wolves can definitely impact the 
uh, behavior of deer on that scale. They can change where they're at on the landscape. They can change their movement patterns, all kinds of different things. And these can uh, definitely translate to, uh, you know, impacts on deer hunting. Uh, and so, you know, not necessarily uh, removing all the deer from the woods, uh, to put it, uh, you know, frankly, but, uh, but they definitely can have their, their impact. But I think the same thing could be said for, for many things out there in the woods, right? Other hunters, vehicle, other recreators, all kinds of things. So it's, it's kind of one more thing on the landscape that uh, hunters need to be aware of and, and be adaptive to. Let's go back to our callers. Bill is with us in Bayfield County. Bill, hi. Hi. Uh, my question is, I'm completely blind. I can't see a thing. I can't see if the sun's shining. And I live right in the middle of Bayfield County. There are a lot of wolves in this county. And in fact, last fall, there was a male and a female that came up on the field behind my house, and they couldn't have been more than 150 yards away. What what resources or tools would I have available? Because quite frankly, I'm concerned to go out of the house at night. Bill, thanks for the call. Sorry about the, the that's a worry. Randy, what do we know about uh, safety of humans in places where wolves are prevalent? Yeah, so it's it's always a concern, right? And and people's comfort levels with with wolves or, or really any wildlife, any carnivores, it, it varies person to person for sure. Um, to be clear, we've never had a wolf attack on humans uh, in modern times in Wisconsin. Uh, the times that that has occurred in all of North America in the last hundred plus years is is I think you know less than less than ten for sure. It's it's just a handful. Um, that said, you know, there's still a large wild animal that deserves respect. Uh, and so it's important to keep that in mind as well. Uh, what we have for resources, uh, in addition to some, you know, educational type things on our uh, DNR website is, uh, again, uh, partnering with USDA Wildlife Services. Uh, we have uh, contact information posted on our website. Folks can call that at any time, 365, you know, days out of the year. Uh, and, and call uh, to get assistance with such uh, wolf conflicts. Um, and that can range from, from all kinds of different things, uh, just depending on the situation. Um, but the best place is to call Wildlife Services and, and start that process to get the assistance you might need. Thanks a lot for that call, Bill. Randy, before we run out of time, I want to ask about uh, wolf hunting. I know a lot of people are concerned about that. Now, while the gray wolf is considered endangered here in Wisconsin at the federal level, no wolf hunt. But if that changes, I believe state uh, statute requires a wolf hunt. Uh, how does that all fit into this management plan? Yep, that's exactly right. If and when wolves become delisted uh, in the future, uh, state law uh, requires Wisconsin to implement a wolf season. And so a big focus of this updated and, and new wolf management plan is uh, addressing that reality. Uh you know, looking at uh, what would a future season look like uh, as far as implementation, how can we improve it, how can we make sure we meet state quotas, uh, and, and what have lessons learned been uh, during the past wolf seasons held in the state, both in uh, as recently as 2021, but also uh, there were three seasons held back in 2012, 13, and 14. So uh, really uh, outlining uh, improvements to how those seasons will be implemented in the future and and really just being ready, uh, being prepared for if and when uh, that change in legal status comes to make sure that we can set up a, a wolf season that uh, is, is well run, well implemented, uh, but also provides uh, quality opportunity for those that want to participate, uh, all while trying to meet our management objectives uh, and ensure that the wolf population itself remains healthy.
Let's go back to our callers. Rana is with us in Cameron. Rana, hi. Hi, good afternoon. I'm excited to get the answer to this question. Uh, I have been wondering what first started um, uh, in Wisconsin, what first started us trying to control populations of particular animals, uh, wildlife? What was the kickoff animal and what were the circumstances and and why did we do this and how did it grow and evolve? Thanks for the call. That's a huge question for our last couple of minutes, uh, Randy. But do you have uh, thoughts on the uh, the history of why we, for some species, have this in-depth management plan? Well, that's a good question. We, you know, f- from the DNR's perspective, we have management plans for some uh, species and certainly not all. Um, but I think with high-profile species such as uh, wolves, uh, we have a black bear management plan. Uh, we have, I believe, Turkey. We have we have a handful of management plans, and we're looking to develop more. Um, you know, in today's world, there's a lot of competing interests, uh, both from the human side on wildlife, but also making sure these populations stay healthy. You know, there's obviously a lot of ecological benefits. There's a lot of impacts to humans through uh, agricultural damage, things like that. And so this is this is kind of the department's way, if you will, of trying to outline these programs. Uh, the objectives, the goals, the the strategies, uh, and trying to capture this in something that uh, is is digestible ultimately to the public, and and gives us some good direction. Uh, and then again, of course, continuing to update these as the decades move on uh, to stay to, to stay effective in an ever changing world. Rana, thanks for the call. In our last half a minute or so, Randy, now that this plan is approved, what happens next? Um, in the immediate, the, the short term here, we're, we're taking the document and we're providing some some final formatting. And so we're hoping to have a, a final uh, document to post on our website and share broadly uh, very soon. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get to the business of implementing the plan. I think one of the first steps that we'll look to do is bring together a wolf advisory committee, uh, which includes stakeholder groups, tribal participants uh, or representation DNR staff and, and a wide variety of folks to, uh, you know, start to get to the business of implementing this plan. Uh, and of course, all the while keeping an eye on that federal status, uh, if and when uh, a change might occur uh, at that level. Randy, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Randy Johnson, a large carnivore specialist at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. He talked to us today about the state's new wolf management plan. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. This is the Ideas Network. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. The 21 countries of Latin America, including South America, Central America, Mexico, parts of the Caribbean, are home to some of the richest and most flavorless culinary traditions in the world. And we have an expert on those traditions with us today for Food Friday with the author of a new cookbook with more than 300 home-style recipes from all over that region. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your favorite Latin American or Latin American-inspired recipes, uh, ingredients, dishes? Do you have a a family recipe that fits the bill that you'd like to tell us about? Tell us about the best Latin American food you've ever eaten. 
join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Sandra Gutierrez is a journalist, food historian, a professional cooking instructor, and author of five cookbooks. Her latest is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. Sandra, thanks a lot for joining us today. Hello, Rob. Thank you for having me. I'll admit, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. Latin American food that I encountered was, was Taco Bell and not much more. We're getting so much more availability to food, not just from Mexico now, but all over the region. Can you talk about uh, I don't know, this region and the food it's bringing us, this great food it's bringing us in the United States? Yes, your experience, you're not alone in it. Uh, Most people have tried Mexican food and that's it. And that is why in my book I explain that Mexican food is the front door to Latin American cuisines. But Mm -hmm. once you cross over the threshold of that house, you will find 20 other kitchens inside. And each one is as exciting and as valuable and as vibrant as the next. It's, it's an area that is very varied. A lot of different cultures have uh, melded depending on the territory that they found themselves in. And so each country has a very distinct flavor. Can you talk a little more about that melding of different cultures? Because, you know, I, could, I would have guessed a few different cultures, but actually uh, there are people from all over the world bringing their traditions into Latin America. Yes, and it's fascinating. The first people, of course, being the indigenous groups, the indigenous nations in Latin America, several of which the most renowned, the Inca, the Aztec, the Mayas, but many, many more. And then, of course, the conquerors or the Spaniards and Portuguese, namely the Iberians that came and conquered Latin America and then brought the enslaved people from the Africas to replace the population that they had decimated. And after that, at the same time that Ellis Island is getting this massive migration from all over the world, they are also going to Latin American countries and different groups of people land in different countries, in different territories, in different numbers. So, for example, uh, you you have a lot of Italians in New York, for instance, but they also uh, went down to Argentina. They fell in love with the Argentinian land where they could produce wine and it reminded them of home. And a lot of Germans went to Chile, for instance, which is the, the, the country right next to Argentina, Uh, producing two very different cuisines and so on and so forth. You have a lot of Chinese, Hakka and Japanese influence in Peru and you have a lot of um, American influence, North American influence in Panama and so so on. They're all different uh, groups of people and of course many more groups that meet in different countries, meaning the Jews, the Lebanese, they all meet with different cultures like Italians in different cult in different countries, but their numbers and the dissimilar combinations is what creates these flavors that are so unique. Sandra, you've been through this amazing journey. What is it uh, that you were looking for to make find the recipes that were going to make the cut uh, in this book to represent this huge region? They had to be recipes that home cooks in Latin America that are contemporary to our cooks here are making today. So I didn't want any of the esoteric, rare (laughs) kind of recipes that people, what I call the National Geographic effect, you know, that people usually think of Latin American food as being very exotic and very different and very frightening. No, they had to be modern recipes that have survived over time. So some of them can actually have indigenous roots, but that they're still being made today. They have to be easy with ingredients that are 
very easy to find no matter where you find yourself. So you would not, not have any trouble finding your um, ingredients in your regular supermarket with a few exceptions. And you can order those online. Very, very few exceptions. And then they had to be practical with um, techniques that the everyday cook knows how to do already. Because what I was trying to do was really make a collection of recipes for the modern cook of today. It's Food Friday. Sandra Gutierrez is with us. Her new book is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite uh, restaurant food that you've had uh, from Mexican cuisine or South America, Central America, the Caribbean? Uh, Is there something that you've encountered and made yourself maybe in your travels? Or are we talking about the food you grew up with. Love to hear about that at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Sandra, you shared a couple recipes with us. We've got them online at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Let's check this one out. A pasta con palta. Now, I looked at this and said, wait, this is pasta and pesto. Isn't that Italian? Hold on. It's pasta with (laughs) avocado pesto, which I don't think I've ever had. Tell us about it. It's a delicious, creamy rendition of pesto, and it is from Chile, the country Chile. And I find it fascinating that even though we all speak Spanish in Latin America, the words are not always the same. So (laughs) palta means avocado, which, of course, most people recognize as aguacate. But aguacate is the Nahuatl or Aztec word for it. And once you cross over to South America, it becomes palta. The recipe is so, so simple. It's quicker to make than regular pesto. And it really is a mixture of avocado and walnuts, some salt, some garlic, some olive oil. And while the pasta is cooking, you blend this together in the blender. As soon as the pasta comes out of the pot, you combine it. And the avocado sauce becomes warm and creamy. It's truly delectable, very sophisticated and yet super easy and super inexpensive to make sounds fantastic again you can find that at wpr.org slash food friday now you start off the book uh with a bunch of uh, sauces that we can make a uh, represent that we're going to use in a lot of these recipes on the ideas network facebook page uh, pete mentioned one of them he's a fan of chimichurri sauce which i think is from argentina mostly uh, you've got a couple recipes what goes into a good chimichurri sauce Yes, the chimichurri known um, widely through South America is an Argentinian sauce, and it's based on pesto. Uh, What goes into a really good chimichurri are fresh herbs, in particular parsley, fresh Italian parsley. You'll have some red pepper flakes. You'll have quality red wine vinegar and olive oil, and, uh, and then that's where the variations begin. Because if you go to Central America, they have replaced the parsley with cilantro. And many Argentinians will add tomato to their chimichurri, and some will add carrots and celery to their chimichurri. So it's basically an herb sauce used as an accoutrement or a side or a topping to steaks and to other protein. Uh, it, it really is delicious. My, the two recipes that I picked are very different, and I do offer variations in the book so people can taste what similar foods in different countries are like. Now, I, I said chimichurri is Argentinian, and, and you agreed. Are there foods where, like, there are arguments from one country to the next or one region to the next? Like, no, 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 we invented that. You borrowed it. 
Oh, that's a great question. Uh, yes, there are many of those. <laughs> of course, I would say even within the same country. And that's why I stay away from the word authentic, because mm. if a Guatemalan grandmother is making arroz con pollo, which is chicken and rice in their home and adding um, capers and olives, but her neighbor next door to her is actually adding peas and carrots. Who is to say which one is authentic and which one isn't when they're both amazing and they're both you know the same variety of of ingredients going into a pot with a few differences that happens throughout latin america uh but we have come we have become used to that because the variations of recipes that are repeated throughout latin america makes each unique for example i'll tell you the simple sauce that came from the spaniards who themselves got it from the persians sofrito and that is the that mirepoix which is the French flavor base of Latin American cuisine. So frito started by being just a mixture of onions and olive oil that were cooked, and that would be the base to a recipe. But once you cross over to the Americas, you start getting different countries adding different ingredients. So for example, in Cuba, you'll have them add um, bell peppers and tomato and uh, achiote, which is a natto. Anato, of course, is what makes cheddar cheese orange. So you've all had anato, even though it sounds like a foreign Oh, here in ingredient. Wisconsin, we've eaten a lot of it, yes. <laughs> you've had cheddar cheese in Wisconsin, I know <laughs> that. <laughs> so you're familiar with that. But um, the Cubans will add that to their sofrito, making it a completely different color. And then in Central America, you have the additions of tomatoes on top of that, and so on and so forth. Uh, in Puerto Rico, you will not have any tomatoes. You will actually have an herb called culantro, which is a sawtooth cilantro, it's called. It's a long-leaf cilantro, very different from what we typically know as cilantro in the rest of the Americas. So every country added their own ingredient, making one recipe into many. And that is why I tell you we're used to having these competitions of we made it first, we made it first. It really doesn't matter. It's who makes it last that matters, I think. It's Food Friday. We're talking to food writer Sandra Gutierrez about her new cookbook, Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you've traveled to Mexico, Central America, South America, or the Caribbean, do you have some favorite foods you encountered along the way? If your family has origins in Latin America, what are some of your family's favorite dishes? The, the food you grew up with, have you modified it for life here in Wisconsin along the way? Do you have favorite dishes or questions for our guest? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up our Food Friday conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our Food Friday conversation with Sandra Gutierrez, food writer and author of the new cookbook, Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. We're talking about dishes from all over the Caribbean, South and Central America, up to Mexico, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about food that you like, that you love, that you want to know more about, that you want to know how to make that one particular thing you had at a restaurant or while traveling? Or did you grow up with food from one of these traditions we're talking about? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or I don't know, maybe you're calling for uh, some takeout 
based on this conversation. Join in at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Now, Sandra, we've got another recipe you shared with us up at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Now, growing up, uh, you know, in Michigan, plantains, I wouldn't have known. Is that a banana? Uh, they weren't at stores. Now they're all over the place, uh, easy to find even at non-specialty grocery stores. I love them. I can't get enough of them. You've got uh, platanos con tocino or plantain and bacon hash. So this is plantains, bacon, and eggs, a winner in my book. Tell us about the recipe. Absolutely. I wanted to include ingredients that are not traditionally Latin American and, however, have made one of the biggest impacts in our food. And one of those is plantains. They actually come from Africa. Mm -hmm. And when they're green, they're used as a vegetable. They are starchy and they can be used um, as a potato. You can fry it into fries and, and, and mash it into mashes, you know, like mashed potatoes. But when they're sweet and they're yellow and turning a little brown, they become uh, so delicious to cook. And bacon, of course, is salty and bacon is bacon. Bacon has that umami flavor we all love. And in combination, they make this very delicious, easy breakfast dish from Honduras. And that was part of what I wanted to do in this book. It was to demystify Latin American food. It's not all spicy. It's not all cheese laden it's not all covered in sauces and you will find a lot of similarities between the food of latin america and foods that you're you know used to eating here so you know like your potato hash with bacon or your casseroles that you have with potatoes or sweet potatoes and chives this is a very simple rendition of a hash and it's just plantains that are cooked in rendered bacon uh, fat and then you add the crispy bacon to it and you top it with a fried egg and it's just oh an amazing breakfast now let's talk about uh using those plantains uh now when we want them in that uh, less ripe that's easy to tell when i get plantains i let a, i let it look like they're rotting on the outside like those the peel is getting black and then they're ready for this kind of recipe right that means the inside is ripe that's right. It almost looks like it's rotting. And that's the amazing thing about it. But at that point, it's sweet. But the fun thing about it is that if you buy them when they're still green, you can actually shred them, you can cut them into big pieces and double fry them. Um, so you fry them once and then you mash it down into a chip and then you, ma you fry it a second time. Those are called tostones. And I offer a lot of recipes with all the different kinds of or different styles of ripeness of the plantains the stages and uh it, like that i do with many many ingredients in the book this is an ingredient based cookbook mm -hmm. because i find that many of the cuisines have uh the same ingredients that thread them together even though they produce completely different results and that was important for me it is essential that people get to know the food of your neighbors i don't know why in the united states we went so far into first exploring the food of Asia and the Middle East and all the cookbooks, you know, from Europe. And we have truly uh, left Latin America on the side when it is actually a fascinating melting pot of global flavors. You mentioned you organized the cookbook. I, I was expecting country by country. No, it's uh, some base ingredients. One of them is corn. I like corn. Can you talk about some of the varieties of ways that uh, corn is used across these 21 countries? Yes, I call corn the backbone of the Americas. It's the one ingredient we all have in common, North America into Central America into South America. Uh, and corn in Latin America has very different ways of being used. You can use it raw like we use it here and eat it in salads like the esquite salad in Mexico. Or you can nixtamalize it, which means that you get your flint corn or heirloom corn 
and make it go through a chemical reaction where you put it in water that has been treated with calcium hydroxide, which makes the heirloom corn lose, lose its outer kernel. And then that is what you mill and you make masa from, and that is what you make tortillas and tamales from. But once you go into South America, the corn goes into a different chemical reaction and a different way of processing it. And you get this flour, which is also instant, like your masa arena, but it is pre-cooked flour. Masa arena has not been pre-cooked. It's called masa arepa or arepa flour. And you make these corn cakes that are truly delectable. They're mostly found in Venezuela and in Colombia, and they can be different thicknesses, but it's not pliable. They're not pliable like tortillas where you can fold around the food. These actually serve as bases or as bread or as a sandwich that you can actually cut through in the middle. And the outside of it is like toasty and wonderfully crispy and delicious but the inside remains soft like polenta and that is the flavor that you get and that's different mm. from tortillas uh, and then of course you cook them you put them in stews it depends where, where you are the different uses of corn but it is the ingredient that is central to all of the cuisines of the americas it's food friday talking to sandra gutierrez about her new cookbook latinissimo home recipes from the 21 countries of latin america all right, Sandra, a great food that's in abundance in Wisconsin right now is squash, our winter squash. There's still some summer squash lurking out there as well. That is one of your ingredients. Can you share some inspiration? Uh, let's go with uh, winter squash. I know you've got some butternut and things like that. Uh, what's a good inspiration from your, your travels and journeys for us to do here in Wisconsin with our winter squash? There's a wonderful locro or a special soup from Ecuador that's made with potato and squash, and then they add fresh cheese to it. It is subtle. It is warm. And of course, you know, it embraces you on a cold night, but it, it also has this depth of flavor that um, there's no spice in it. There's no heat in it in terms of chiles, but it has a little bit of cumin and it offers you this delicious new twist on what would be a normal butternut squash soup. It's really, really good. We also cook squashes in sweet recipes. So you will find them transformed into jams and jellies. Um, you will find them used in the summer squash. You will find use in a dish from Mexico called calabacitas, which is simply stir fried a zucchini and uh, yellow squash with pimentos and with tomatoes and onions. And it's really delicious. It, you make, make it in about 20 minutes and you serve it with your dinner. Or you can top pasta with it or do a lot of other things. The point of the, each one of these ingredients is that once it falls into the hands of the different groups of people who um, are already in the countries but also descend in, into the countries from different parts of the world, they get changed and transformed into dishes that are not as different as those that you've tasted before. So everybody's used now to having a butternut squash soup or a bisque in the mm -hmm. fall and winter. You will find different renditions of that in Latin America. And that's what I wanted my readers to take and the cooks to find recipes that don't ask them to take a very big leap of faith where they're going to go, oh my goodness, that sounds so weird. But on the contrary, there are things that they can say, well, I love minestrone soup, so that means I will love the minestra from Argentina, which is a similar soup, or I love pasta sauce, and I, I would love to try the Peruvian pasta sauce that's made, again, with annatto, which you use to color cheddar teas, and different ingredients, and have has actually no tomatoes. So um, 
all these different uh, ideas that I want people to, to feel comfortable trying because it only takes a little bit of imagination to, to say, I, I know what it resembles. And you don't have to feel like I'm sending you through this voyage of very exotic, different <laughs> foods. Now, Sandra, uh, as I mentioned, there's like 300 recipes in this book. That sounds like a lot, but I understand uh, you narrowed this down from the thousands of recipes. Do you have a, a sequel concept in the works? Because you got a lot more uh, material lying around. I have boxes and boxes of recipes <laughs> lying around. And, and it was really hard to make the cut. I went from 9,000 to 3,000 to 2,000. And then my editor started saying, you know, cutting and cutting. Because you can't make a book that big. It would take... <laughs> you know, a train to carry each book. It, it already is a big book as it is. But I try to find the recipes that represent, like I told you at the beginning, food that home cooks are making today in their homes. So with modern equipment like blenders and food processors and things that really will, I think, I think resonate to the American cook today. So there are recipes with very easy ingredients to find, not expensive recipes to make, and things that are similar to other foods that people have had before, which will give you a nice picture of the, the, the kinds of food that Latin Americans eat. It's not what most people think. Uh, it's not, you know, the iguana from the jungle in Guatemala that you <laughs> have to macerate and chilies for seven days before you cook it, you know, or weird recipes like that. We actually eat very similar food. So nice chicken cooked in coconut uh, that will remind mm. you of a, a Thai curry, but it's actually from Panama. Fantastic. Or, you know, a delicious soup that re will remind you of a chowder because it's made with coconut milk, but it's actually from Belize. And, and we'll leave it there. Thanks to our Food Friday guest, Sandra Gutierrez. Her new book is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can find a couple recipes from the book over at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Today is being celebrated as National Sandwich Day. Why today? It marks supposedly the birthday of the English fourth Earl of Sandwich, whose cook came up with the idea of putting stuff between two pieces of toast so the Earl could have something to eat while gambling. That probably wasn't the first ever sandwich, but that's where the name comes from. And some sandwich recipe restaurant chains are offering deals today. I didn't know about that at lunchtime. I just ate some soup that I made last night for lunch today. Now I have sandwiches on the brain, but I also have Latin American food on my mind from Food Friday. Good news. I can do both. We're going to pick up Mexican food to bring over to my mother-in-law's. And the restaurant makes tortas, delicious Mexican sandwiches. So my dinner plan is coming together. Everything's coming up, Rob. This is Central Time.